Okay, all good. Um, yeah, so when I was told I had the entire Bible to work with, um, that, that's, that's a, you know, a daunting task. So what I settled on was the book of Obadiah. Book of Obadiah. Now, there's a long journey about why I got to that point, but the key point is this. It is the shortest book in the Bible. And so we can cover today an entire book of the Bible in one sermon. Isn't that, isn't that great? Just a little bit of background on the book of Obadiah. So Obadiah is what would be called one of the minor prophets in the Bible. Uh, there were 12 minor prophets and four major prophets. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, those are sort of seen as the major prophets. But Obadiah is one of many minor prophets. And effectively, I think they're just minor because they're a lot shorter stories um, and have, have a kind of a narrower focus. And often I think we can disregard these kinds of books because they're often quite hard work. They're often full of sort of difficult language. They can seem quite repetitive at times. You know, it's a lot of kind of historical context and a lot of kind of harsh, angry God that we seem to see in these stories. And Obadiah is no different. It's a prophecy. The prophet Obadiah speaks to the people of Israel about the kingdom of Israel, about this neighboring kingdom called, called Edom and the judgment that God has for them. And so when I sort of settled on this book and started reading it and reflecting on it, I thought, oh gosh, what have I, what have I got myself in for here? But I was just struck by uh, that, that amazing verse in, in Timothy, the book of Timothy, that Paul writes to his friend Timothy in the early church that says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So everything in the Bible is useful and helpful and has something for us. And so I didn't want to just avoid it. I didn't want to go, okay, this is a difficult one. We should, we should engage with challenging passages and verses in the Bible. And I think one of the final thing that I think is great about Obadiah is now when we all go to heaven and we meet Obadiah and he says, have you read my book? Today, you can say you have because we're going to cover the whole thing, all 21 verses in Obadiah. So I'm going to save you that awkward conversation uh, when you meet him. So let's just start reading it together. We're going to go through kind of chunks at a time and unpack what the book of Obadiah says. So let's go through the first four verses here together. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So this first section really sets the tone to the, for the book of Obadiah. And it sets the tone because it kind of lays out what the problem is here. The problem is pride. It says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The people of this nation, Edom, say, who can bring me to the ground? They live up in this sort of hill country, in the mountains. Who, who can touch us? But I think it's first helpful, isn't it, to get the context of this. And I mean, for Obadiah, we actually don't know a whole lot about this man. So there's not much to say. We know roughly the period in history that he's talking about and speaking into. It's a period where the, the Israelite nation has been kind of taken uh, over. Jerusalem has been ransacked by uh, Babylon. 
And so, and so we know kind of that part of the context, but we don't know much about the man himself, Obadiah. But what we do know about is the nation of Edom. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the kind of Marvel superhero movies. They're very popular. Um, but basically, those films, the reason I think a lot of people really enjoy them is because every single film in that series kind of connects together. There's about 20, 30 different films and some about different heroes, but they're all part of this same connected universe. So you'll watch something in one film, it's like a little Easter egg, then comes back into play later. Something that happens here becomes a bigger thing in you know, the third Avengers film or something. And the, the funny thing is, a lot of people really enjoy that, but actually the, the Bible is, is equally a, a set of interconnected individual stories that all are part of an overriding narrative. Except the Bible is real, so it's, it's a lot better. Um, but this is exactly the kind of situation where it's really helpful to understand what happened before, what happened in the past. Because the nation of Edom were actually a key player in the history of Israel and the history of the Bible. So we're going to jump all the way back to Genesis to see the literal genesis of this nation of Edom and where they fit in to this story. So the significance of Edom is going to come in Genesis chapter 25. And it starts with Isaac, or rather it probably starts with Abraham. So we all know, we've heard of Abraham, the kind of father of the Jewish nation. And God gives him all these promises about the future. And here's his son Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And God says to Rebekah, Isaac's wife, while he has these two children in the womb, these two twins, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. And we're seeing here the birth of the nation of Israel in Jacob and the birth of the nation of Edom in Esau. Now, Esau was the firstborn son, so he has the birthright. He's the one who should be inheriting everything that his, his father Isaac has been promised, all of the wealth and inheritance and servants and land and all of that. And yet, God has already prophesied that the elder, Esau, will serve the younger. So we already know something's not going to go right here. Something's going to shift here. So let's pick up the story and read what happens to Esau in this story and where things start to go wrong. It's in verse 29, chapter 25 in Genesis. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to, said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. This is why he was called Edom. Um, so that means red. Uh, he had red hair all over his body, and clearly he loves red stew. So his sort of nickname, I guess, was red. Um, Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. So we're seeing the beginnings of something here. And you may hear that and you may think, well, that's, I mean, that, it, it's silly. It's a silly thing to do, but surely it's not that big a deal. He just promised something to his brother but remember, that, remember what happened before in this story. Abraham was promised an incredible promise from God. A promise that his family would outnumber the stars and the grains of sand. A promise about the future of this people that would bring salvation to the whole world. All these incredible promises. And Esau just flippantly says, 
I'll give that away. I'll give that away to my brother. Just because he's hungry. Just because he smells some good food. That's just to tempt him away. You see, the problem with Esau was he didn't take spiritual things seriously. He undervalued something that's of supreme importance. This promise that had been given to his grandfather and would have carried on to him and the generations after him. But what this tells us, isn't it, is something about Esau's heart. Now, if you can imagine, let's say I was at a wedding, and I'm, I'm sure we've all been to these kind of weddings, where let's say it starts, say, 12, and you have that kind of conundrum in your mind, uh, and you're like, do I eat before I go? When, when's the food coming? And I, I go to this wedding, and we, we have the service, right? Yep, you start looking around, where's the food? And there's nothing. And you go, oh, no, I've made a big mistake. I'm supposed to eat beforehand. There's nothing for a long, long time. And imagine if I'm just, it's been hours and hours, and I'm just looking around. Where's this food? And then someone comes up to you and says, hey, I've got, some, I've got some food for you. I'm like, yeah, sure, sure, great, thank you. Oh, but how about I give you this food if you promise to leave your wife? I'm really hungry. Oh, sure, whatever, whatever. Now, obviously, me saying that is not some sort of big, you know, kind of legal commitment, right? I can say that, and then I can, you know, I don't have to leave Katrina. Um, but what does that say about my heart? If, I, if in that moment when I'm faced with something that's really kind of serious, I'm willing to just go, yeah, what, whatever. That's kind of what Esau does here. He has, he has a, it's a really serious thing that Jacob is asking of him, and he just throws it away. And it's often, isn't it, for us in those extreme moments that we kind of show our true colors. People talk about being hangry, don't they? You know, I'm so hungry, I've become angry. How many times have we had to apologize to someone because we've been, oh, I'm sorry, I was so hungry. You, you snap at someone or at the kids. Oh, it's because I had a tough day at work. Or maybe you're just so tired. And so that's, that's why this kind of frustration or anger, this bad decision gets made. I always used to say that, that uh, tiredness is the Christian drunk, right? It's, the, it's like Christians, we don't really get drunk, but we still use that excuse of, oh, I was really tired. That's why I made that bad decision. I'm so, so, I'm, I'm, I'm so, so tired. You know, and so many people in the world today would say, oh, I was just drunk. I'm so sorry. As Christians, there's all other kinds of excuses that we still make for why we make bad decisions. When we're at the end of our rope, when the rubber hits the road, I guess the question is, do we take God seriously? Do we take the decisions we make seriously? And the story goes on, and Jacob then tricks his father into giving him his blessing. So now Jacob has the birthright, and he has the blessing. And Esau is just... He's just so frustrated, so angry. And eventually he says, I'm just going to kill my brother. Now, we know that doesn't happen. There's more to the story. But as we read on in Scripture, we see that Esau's descendants and Jacob's descendants separate. And the descendants of Esau become the nation of Edom and the Edomites. And they hate Israel. And it all starts in this story. The hatred that Esau has kind of, kind of keeps echoing through his descendants into this book of Obadiah. And you may think, isn't that ex really extreme? Like all these people just taking on like their father or their grandfather or their great-grandfather, the descendants kind of hatred. Does, does one person really have that big an impact? But if you just look at the world around us, if you look at the good and the bad in the world around us, it's all built on someone else's decisions. You know? All of the inequality and just sinful, just 
bad stuff that goes on in the world are based on decisions that someone made decades, maybe hundreds of years ago that just echo and echo and echo. Or this building we're in now, you know, this incredible thing, this is, this is the echo of decisions that another church made. But if you echo even further back, it's the decisions of people who had structural engineering experience, people who understood the sort of kind of how to make these things happen. All the tech that we have here are built on these things. The COVID vaccine is built on scientists' years of experience and doing different tests on various things. So when this comes along, they're able to kind of build on that, on those echoes. We all have an impact. Each decision we make has a huge, a much bigger impact than I think we realize. But of course, the challenge is, is that what, do, what decisions do we allow to echo in our lives? What things, what, 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 what bad decisions that we've made or someone else made, or maybe even good decisions we've made or someone else has made, do we allow to echo in our lives? It's so easy, isn't it, to get into those same patterns over and over again, just like the Edomites have started with Esau and have allowed his hatred and his anger and, and his pride to kind of corrupt and to keep going in this nation. So we see the pride of Esau. He cares so much more about his hunger and how he feels in that moment to anything else. And that's just, that's just the core of pride, isn't it? And yet this echoes and echoes and echoes. And the Edomites are still a prideful people. What decisions have we made in our life that still echo, that we still struggle with? What are the patterns of behavior that we're still, still allowing to continue? Or what, what things has someone else done to us that we're still allowing to impact us today? We allow them to kind of fester and grow. That's what pride, that's what sin does. It just kind of festers and it grows and it echoes and it echoes. So now we've kind of really well set up, I think, who the nation of Edom are, who, who these people are and where this all kind of started. So let's carry on. We're only four verses in, but we're going to pick up speed now. And let's just carry on again. We're going to go start back from verse 3 and read up now to verse 9 together. The pride of your heart has deceived you. This is what Obadiah says about the Edomites. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not just leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Whew. So I mean, these, these passages, they're harsh. There's some kind of real kind of oh, weight to it, isn't there? And this all starts again from the Edomites' pride. And I want to just kind of unpack just quickly just a few of the things that, that are kind of the sources of their pride. You see, God mentions, I, I counted about five, maybe you could find more, about five things that God says, I'm just going to take that away from you. I'm going to get rid of that. And that's because these things would have been sources of pride for the people of Edom. They would have had pride in their position. We see in verse 4, it says they're their home in the heights and their nest among the stars. They're in this, in this really sort of strategically important place. So they look down, literally, on everyone. They have pride in their wealth. It talks about their hidden treasures of Esau. They would have had pride in their power. In verse 7, they have allies and friends. 
They have pride in their wisdom, as it talks about the wise men of Edom, and pride in their, pride in their strength, where it talks about their warriors. There were all these pillars of pride that clearly Edom must have. And yet, in every case, God, almost with sort of poetic justice, kind of turns it on his head and says, you know, you, you have a home in the heights, I will bring you down. You have pride in your wealth, well, that, that, that treasure will be pillaged. You, you have pride in all this power you have with your allies, well, God says those allies will betray you. You have pride in your wisdom, well, the wise men of Edom, they're going to be destroyed, and your warriors, well, they are going to be terrified. And now we read this, don't we, as New Testament believers, and we think, okay, so is this saying that then all of my problems, all of my enemies, God is just going to wipe them away? And no, <laughs> that's not how we read the Bible. We don't just take every passage and say, that's for me, that's for me, that's for me, the good stuff, the bad stuff, da, da, no. Well, rather, we should think, who, who was Obadiah speaking to? Obadiah didn't write this down and then bury it, and then eventually, years later, we, picked, we dug it up and go, oh, this is, this is for us today. He was, write, he was writing this, or he was saying it initially, writing this to a people who were in exile, a people who, had, who would have been decimated by the Babylonians. So when they hear that justice is coming for this nation, who has, we'll find out in a bit, really persecuted them, really been nasty to them, for them, that would have actually been a good thing. That would have been the right thing. Do they know their God is a God of justice? He's a God who's not ignored all of these things that this other nation have done, all these other things that the other nation has been lording over them. So what do we take from this today? We don't take that God is going to destroy all our enemies, but we can take that we have a God who believes in right and wrong, a God of justice. That's important to remember. We often forget that about our God. He's a God of grace and mercy, but he's also a God of right and of wrong. And that's, that's the case then. It's still the case now. But let's carry on reading, and let's see. I think this is the crux of where we find out why God has chosen to uh, judge the people of Edom here. Verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Now, these verses here are the kind of historical moment that kind of almost explains why God has chosen this time to judge the Edomites. Because, of course, we've seen, yes, they've got all these sort of pillars of pride, I guess, things that they raise to an importance way above what they should be. What, to a point where they say, we don't need God, we don't need you know, the Israelites, we don't need any of this because we have all of these things. If that, if that was the only problem, then the question is, well, why didn't God deal with that before? And the answer is, is that the context I mentioned before, this is telling us about what the Edomites have done in this kind of recent history. The nation of Edom, where, while the Babylonians were ransacking Jerusalem, were, first of all, doing nothing to stop it. But actually, worse than that, they were joining in. 
They came in and they pillaged and they ransacked. They carried people off as slaves. They killed refugees and people trying to escape. And they gloated over the Israelites. It's almost like this kind of story is like God's case against Edom. And it starts with him sort of outlining the problem and then building up to talk about all of these, all of these things, all of these signposts of pride, and then ends with, and this is where it's manifest, this is where it's got to, that you're willing to jump in and just kind of completely decimate your, your brother kingdom of Israel. You see, the path of pride, it starts in the human heart, doesn't it? It starts, we, we've kind of covered this at the very start, it starts in the human heart, but it doesn't stop there. So we've started saying, the problem is in the human heart. But then we've kind of got onto, yeah, but then what happens then is it kind of starts to manifest in all these different things that you raise up and you say, this is more important than God. This, this can be a bit higher. This can be a bit higher. Actually, my job is much more important. Actually, I think this aspect of my life, you know, kind of the money I'm making, this should be a bit higher. All these things start to take a, an undue priority in our life, too much. We start taking pride in ourselves and in these, these other things. But where does that lead? Well, that leads then to what's happened here. Maybe, maybe today that's not going to look the same, of course. But the reason the Edomites were willing to do this was because if you really, really value your wealth, if you see someone else has got loads of wealth lying around while they're being you know, kind of attacked by the enemy, of course you're just going to go grab it, aren't you? If all you care about... Is, is your kind of position over these people and your power, then as they're getting kind of running away, why wouldn't you just cut them down and say, ah, yes, we're going to get them. You know, we're going to teach them a lesson. All these pillars, all these things that were part of their, that kind of built, they built their pride upon are sort of what lead them to then take these radical decisions that are just awful. And yet again, if we think of our own lives, many of us are going to be in a similar place. Now, some of us may be in a position where the pride that we kind of feel, you know, the sort of the stuff that's in, it's still kind of in our heart. And none of us can avoid that. We all have this, this pride in our heart that we have to grapple with. And some of us, it's kind of just there, festering and festering. But we need to be careful that we don't then presume that then that's, that that's okay, that's enough. That I don't have to deal with that because at some point, if we don't, if we don't kind of continually just sort of check on that and make sure that we've sort of we, we, we know what's going on in here, that becomes something that's out here. And when, some, when something out here, after a while, when that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, that affects then how we act, how we treat other people. That is kind of, I think, the path of pride that we see laid out in the book of Obadiah. It starts in the heart, it becomes sort of a, a, a real thing in life, and then it starts impacting all other kinds of people. So that's why God is saying, Edom, you're going to get what you deserve. The consequences of pride. We're seeing the consequences of pride from the side of how it's impacting the people of Israel and the consequences of pride that God is saying, and now this is how it's going to impact you. I'm going to take away all of these things that you have. But, of course, we're reading, firstly, about what Edom deserves, but then in this last part, there's suddenly a shift. There's suddenly a shift in the passage. So we're going to read a couple, of, a couple more verses, and let's see if we can spot this shift. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own 
head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But wait, weren't we talking about Edom? Isn't it just them? Aren't they the problem? Why are we now talking about all nations? Why are we talking about us? You see, the point is, is that it's not just about Edom, is it? Now, Edom is a great example of how God sees pride and sin. But this part of the passage opens it up so that it applies to all nations. It applies to everyone. It applies to me and to you. It applies to Israel as much as to Edom. And in fact, the word Edom, it sounds like our word Adam. Well, actually, it sounds like that in the original language as well. So that's no coincidence that the word Edom and Adam have this kind of similar thing. So when someone is reading this in that time, they would have heard that and gone, ah. So maybe, maybe this doesn't spring from Edom. Maybe this problem doesn't just spring from them. Maybe it springs from further back. Maybe not even just from Esau. Maybe all the way back to Adam. Maybe the problem started somewhere long, long, long ago. And that problem is something that affects all mankind, all nations, all people. We all have to grapple with this. Now, obviously, as New Testament believers reading this, we kind of see the full picture of Scripture, don't we? And so when we hear this, it suddenly hits us like, ah, yes, we all deserve this punishment, this retribution for the things we have done. Big things, small things, but we all deserve it. So when we've heard, we, we've heard all these things, we go, yes, Edom's going to get it. Yeah, you know, they've, they've done all this stuff. And then suddenly it goes, and all nations are going to get it. We go, ah, well, I'm, I'm part of all nations. <laughs> that includes me. And I think the problem is, is that so often we love to sort of downplay the impact of pride and sin in our lives. You know, just like Esau treated sort of spiritual things quite lightly, and he sort of just allowed it to just flick away just because he was hungry. I think we often do the same thing with something like sin and pride, despite the fact that we read in a book like this, and this is why I think it's so important we, we do engage with books like this. God cares a lot about these things to the point where there's some really harsh language about it. And so if we hold sin really lightly and we just kind of go, oh, yeah, it's not a big thing. Again, what does that become? It becomes a pillar that kind of builds in our life. And suddenly then we're just doing all kinds of things in our life. So often we don't want to confront that there's actually a problem in the human heart that we all have to deal with. And we can't just make excuses. We can't just say, I was hungry. I was tired. Because that pride that we see in the book of Obadiah, it now applies to all of us. It should remind us how seriously we should take sin. And you see, the thing is, when we minimize sin and we say, you know what, what I did wasn't a big deal. Oh, come on, you know, that, 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 you know, they're much worse than me. And we try and play it down and play it down. Oh, you know, it's just a white lie. Oh, you know, you know everyone gossips at work. Oh, whatever. When we try and play it down and listen to what the world says, the, I mean, the world says that sin's probably not real. You know, the world says that right and wrong is whatever you decide. And you know, kind of if you feel bad at all about anything, just put, you push that to one side. You shouldn't ever feel bad about anything. If we listen to that voice, we end up minimizing what Jesus achieved on the cross. Because what Jesus achieved on the cross was to defeat sin. And sin is a serious thing. And you know, you know, the amazing thing about the cross is that there is, is the kind of, is that weight of sin that we feel. And then we feel that weight lifted 
by what Jesus achieved. But if we minimize that, we say, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. But then what did Jesus die on the cross for? Why, why would he go to such great lengths if it wasn't a big deal? Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying we should all feel guilt. We should all feel to be wrapped with guilt and oh, shame and all of these things. No, we should be set free from that in Jesus' name because of the cross. But it's to say that we should equally not move away from reading passages like this and, and engaging with the sort of the difficult questions of life about should I should should or should I not do something or that kind of thing. We should we should shy away from these conversations. We shouldn't shy away from, from talking about these things because the world around us is not going to talk about this. But it's our place to still engage with that and to still talk about it and think about it because it just adds such weight to what Jesus did on the cross. And let's just finally finish the, the, the passage in Obadiah because it gives us a real message of hope to end on. From verse 17 down to the end, 21. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him, they'll set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. People from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. So many names. Deliverers will go up from Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So do you remember what I said before? This is the message to the Israelites in exile. And it ends by, by Obadiah saying, one day you'll all be able to return and reclaim the lands that you had. In fact, the lands will expand beyond even what you had before. As I said, the, the tone of the sort of, of the book has shifted. So actually now, as New Testament believers, we see that when it talks about all nations, we go, oh, yeah, that applies to us. And so this part of the passage also we can look at and say, you know what? This restoration that is talked about here can apply to us. We are God's people, and we can know restoration. Because you see, there's, there was the impact of one man before who corrupted a nation. The impact of Esau and his pride built, built pride into the sort of foundations of an entire nation of people. And you know what? They had the choice, but they chose to continue down that path. But you know what? We know the impact of one man who was far, far greater. We have the impact of Jesus Christ, who saves all nations. All people can come to Jesus and know grace and salvation. So the impact of one man's pride was enough to corrupt a nation, but we know that the power of Jesus is enough to save every nation. The entire world is saved through Jesus. The creation will be restored through Jesus. We just have to come to him and accept that. So this book ends with a picture of restoration and hope. And you may be sitting here thinking, oh, man, there's been a lot of judgment and sin and some sort of heavy stuff today, you know, kind of why are we, why are we covering this? Well, I want to just kind of say just a couple quick things about why I think it's important we engage with that. One is just because, well, we can read here, God clearly cares about these things. So we should care. God clearly cares about it enough that some extreme stuff is said. So we should 
we should think about it. And it doesn't mean that it's not a difficult thing to read or a thing to grapple with. And I'm sure in your own time, you can look at it and think about it for yourselves. But God clearly cares. But the second thing is that I think the weightier we feel our sin, the weightier we look in ourselves and say, you know what the problem is? Yeah, it's in me. The more seriously we, we take it, the more incredible and wonderful and glorious the cross becomes. The cross is a wonderful, glorious thing. And so let's not shy away and say, that, that doesn't apply to me. You know, I've dealt with the issues in my heart. No, we all have to deal with it. But when we confront it and say, and we, you know, we come to God and we ask for forgiveness and we know God is a God of forgiveness. So this is, these are wonderful truths. And when we feel that weight and then we feel it lifted, it makes the cross so much more powerful. So just to conclude... We have a kind of full restoration available to us in all its fullness in Jesus. Not just the nation of Israel, but the new nation that God has kind of made us as his church and that will become kind of a new heaven and a new earth um, after. See, Jesus is the fulfillment in the book of Obadiah. He is the answer to the problem of pride. If the, if the question is pride, the answer is Jesus. We can't solve it ourselves. That's, that, that's a big thing that this book teaches us. We can't solve it ourselves because the problem, we look at it and we go, okay, there's this problem. We agree there's a problem, but it's Edom, right? It's Edom. It's, it's, it's Edom, right? And suddenly, no, it's all of us. And we go, wow. Well, there's a problem and, and God's way of solving that problem seems to be pretty harsh. I guess I deserve that too. And yet we know that Jesus has paid the price for us. He has paid that incredible cost for us. So I just want to just end with just a few challenges for us from this book. I've spoken about a few different ideas here. The first one is the impact of one man, the impact of Esau and the, the, the ultimate impact of Jesus. A question I want us to sort of reflect on is what impact do we have in our life? What areas of impact do we have? Think of all the ripples we can make, all the echoes we can make? And are we letting past decisions dictate our future? Just like the Edomites just took on Esau's hatred for the kingdom of Israel and the pride that was in his heart that kind of echoed. Are we allowing things in our life? Are we allowing these sort of chains to kind of to sort of just linger and remain? To just keep echoing and echoing and echoing? Not even things that we've done necessarily. It could be stuff that someone else has done that is just echo and echo. But are we letting those things dictate our future? I've talked a bit about the consequences of pride, the consequences for the Edomites and the consequences for us. And it's just that question of, are we minimizing our sin? The world around us will keep telling us, don't worry, don't, don't worry, it doesn't matter, it's not a big deal. But the gospel starts with us acknowledging that we are sinners who need a savior. It starts from that place. And if we start to remove that from the equation, if we start to remove the we are sinners part, then why do you need a saviour? We, we need to keep feeling that weight of sin. The glorious, the, the glorious thing is that that weight will be lifted, but that doesn't mean we need to pretend that it doesn't exist. So are we, are we still minimising our sin? And do we acknowledge that we need a saviour? And finally, pride is the problem, but Jesus is the answer. You know, we have hope because of God's grace. We have hope because sin and pride are dealt with through Jesus. Nothing we've done can solve that issue, but Jesus has 
and will for you today if you don't know him. So let's just not lose the, the wonder of the cross. It's an amazing song um, that, that says this. Um, it, it, it says, may I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time, standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy, watching wide-eyed at the cost. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. You can look it up on Spotify after this. It's a really, really wonderful song. And that, that, that wonder for the cross comes from us accepting all of these things, accepting the kind of things we read in the book of Obadiah, that yes, this applies to us, that the kind of weight of this applies to us, but you know what? The freedom and the restoration applies to us too. So I'm going to ask Jonathan and Adama and Tom to come back up again and join us. And we're going to sing uh, an amazing song that I think just fits, fits so well with, with this, which is Amazing Grace. And I was thinking about this, you know, we often get asked if we're preaching, what, what, what song do you want to finish? I was thinking about this, I was thinking, I think grace is, is just a wonderful way to kind of finish here. There's a line in the song that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." That is the gospel. That is the gospel right there. The gospel teaches us that we are sinners who need a saviour, and then it immediately lifts that weight from us because we, because we know that that saviour exists and he's Jesus and he's paid the price for us. We, are taught that we know there is a weight, but we know it is lifted in Jesus. So we're going to sing together this amazing song, Amazing Grace. Just Maybe just want to reflect on that. Maybe, Russell, if you go back to the previous slide um, with all of the um, kind of sort of reflections and things. Maybe you can, have, you can have a look at some of those. Maybe one particular kind of question or kind of point stands out to you. But just a time to reflect on this. Reflect on kind of what it, what it means to sort of, yeah, to just kind of understand the cross, where it fits in, in the narrative of scripture. You know, we've, we've covered a lot of scripture today, but we know where it ends. We know where it ends. And I could have carried on and spoken all about sort of after, after this and kind of where in the New Testament we see these, these reflections of, of Edom and kind of what is taught in this book. But let's just reflect 